2: Spend. Welcome to episode 285 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation, New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, and my ass is in the jackpot. If you don't know what that means, you will by the end of the first segment, in which Allison McCaig and I talk about the state of the Mets, what we would do if we were GM, and the best viral video of the last year. Enjoy. Well, Allison, we are recording this on the 13th of June. We have not had a non-draft podcast segment recorded since the 30th of May. Since the 30th of May, the Mets have won exactly one game, and that is the Sunday night game against the Yankees, where Todd Frazier's home run led the Mets to a 2-0 win. We are in the midst of a, of an historically bad stretch for the Mets, um... It seems like literally every game they get a great starting pitching performance and then it's blown. I know that's not the, exactly the truth, but that's certainly how it feels. It seems like the Mets have not scored a run in 9 or 10 years. Again, that's not the truth. But that's just how it feels. It's getting pretty bleak out there. Um, right? It's not just me?
1: No, it's bad. It's really bad. Um, yeah, it's, it's since the like Cubs series which like they got four games swept by the Cubs but like that's the last time like the pitching was really bad was in that Cubs series I mean today it wasn't great we can get to that but um but during that stretch after the Cubs series they lost every game by like three or less runs and most of the time it was by one
2: (laughs) yeah uh I, I I was at work today when the game was happening but I was listening on the radio, and I don't know if it was Howie or Josh said that over the last nine games, the Mets have, I believe it was only once, scored a, scored in more than one inning. Oh my god. It was something like that. I, I'm sure I'm fucking up the stat somehow, but it was something like that. And I just thought, like, oh my goodness, that's pathetic.
1: Yeah. And I mean, by today, I meant yesterday. Yesterday, the, starting, the pitching was not good. And that was yes, the first yeah. time it had been bad in a while. But, like... Oh and God. even so,
2: like, if there was a shorter leash on Wheeler, yeah, it might not have gotten as bad as it got last night.
1: Right. For sure. For sure. It did not exactly put Paul Seawald in a situation <laughs> no. to succeed. Um, but it's just – and I think that there's there there's another stat that I'm sure that I'm also going to mess up that I parroted in one of the recaps I wrote during this stretch. But it was like the, over the losing streak that we had, the eight-game losing streak – like, our starting pitching had, like, a one-point-something ERA. It was absurdly low. And it was, like... It was the,
2: it was the lowest in baseball, I believe, over that
3: stretch. Yeah.
1: And the last time a team had an ERA that low over, like, an eight-game span or whatever it was and lost all the games was, like, the 1919 Washington Senators. Jeez. So, it was, like, we're breaking, like, dead ball era. records of <laughs> bad offense. It's It's just... It's getting really absurd. And I think... What's more frustrating to me about this, and people can, and this can be a debate. I don't think that my opinion is like very, very strong or like fact or anything like that. But what's more frustrating to me about this than other similar periods, not quite as historic as this, but similar periods of offensive ineptitude that we've suffered through over the past couple of years, notably the kind of the summer of 2015 before we turned everything around, is that this team. Like, we should hit more than this. Like, I I say this even as a Mets fan who is jaded and, you know, at times pessimistic, but, like, we're better than this. Like, we're not this bad.
2: Yeah, it seems like everybody is having the worst possible season they could be having offensively. And I know that's not exactly the case because, you know, as Dribble Cabrera and Brandon Nimmo and, you know, Devin Mesoraco, There 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 are some brightish spots among the Mets, you know, starting nine every day. But it just seems to me like I mean did you catch today's game or were you unable to? I watched
1: to? parts of it. I missed the first
2: hour of it. Okay. So you saw the end of the game or you heard the end of the game? At I least? saw
1: the end of the game,
2: yes. Okay, so for those that weren't watching, um Conforto did he walk to get on base
1: um oh my god why don't I remember I was doing I
2: recap. I recapped the game I was like, doing yeah.
1: work at the same time to be fair I was listening to the game it was on my computer screen like it was Gary Heath and Ron like I was watching it at times but I was flipping back and forth between work I was doing in the
2: game right right uh-huh. so anyway yeah Conforto before, got on base. Before, before we get fired fire, talking about how much we will pay attention to the Mets at our respective jobs um yeah, Conforto got on base. Nimmo then hit a, a two-out double. Double. And put so those men on second... The, the tying runs on second and third with Jay Bruce up. Now, I am not the world's biggest Jay Bruce fan. However, you have to think, like, the guys... You know, he hit a, a ground rule double last night. He's he's showing a couple of signs that maybe starting to heat up a little bit. And the first pitch he sees, he... It, Pops up a lazy fly ball.
1: Oh my god! And it was yeah, the first pitch. It was so infuriating.
2: It it was just this like horrible, horrible like realization that you're in a nightmare, not a good dream. Yeah, like you you know you think everything's going right, and it's, oh no, nothing is all right. Yeah. I mean, I I think Bruce is a is a big big problem. I think Conforto, which breaks my heart to say right now, is a big big problem.
1: Yeah, Bruce is a um, worse problem. Um, Yes,
2: he is. Yes, he is. And Bruce had a spring training. Conforto did not.
1: Yeah. And Bruce isn't coming off a ridiculous injury, although he is dealing with injury woes of his own. I mean, I think like like you said, what was the most frustrating about it was that like, yes, last night he had like he looked kind of like he might have been breaking out of it a little bit. And like he even made. And when I say nice plays in the field, I qualify it with like good for Jay Bruce, because like. Because the fact that he's so slow and like doesn't get to balls well, like when he has to dive for a ball, like another guy would probably be camped under it. But he at least right. looked like he was moving better in the outfield, and he, you know, he was looking better at the plate in yesterday's game. And but then today he just had like a like one of his worst games of the season, which is saying something for him. Like he botched multiple fly balls in the outfield. He popped out to end the game with men on base on the first pitch it just he looked dreadful in all facets and now we find out after the game that in addition to his plantar fasciitis he's already dealing with he's like got a sore like lower back and stuff it's like why are you putting him out there day game after a night game then like what
2: I feel like a sore back is such a Jay Bruce injury because he looks like everyone's uncle. Yeah, he t- like, he's he, he's way younger. He's like six years younger than I am, and yet he looks like he could be my father's brother. Like there is, I don't know yep. how that man looks so old, but I he does. And I've, I feel like a sore back is the perfect injury for Jay Bruce. Um, but no, he um, you know he's a big problem, and you know. <laughs> I want to talk about Adrian Gonzalez for a second. Okay, Because Because, yeah. uh, you know, the Mets released Adrian Gonzalez on Sunday night, and I was totally against the Gonzalez signing. Chris had to talk me down on that a little bit on the podcast. But I, I've come to appreciate what Gonzalez was, which was that, you know, he was a cheap, uh, a cheap first baseman that let them give Smith some more time in the minors, that let them put Bruce in the outfield, that let them do a couple of things but they clearly realized that Gonzalez wasn't going to get any better than he was and that that was not enough to keep him around. Yeah. That's a good thing that they came to that realization. I am I am proud of the Mets for doing that.
1: I'm proud That's, of them, but they came to it way too late.
2: Well, that that is certainly part of it. The other part of it is I don't understand how when looking at the way the roster is constructed that they decided that Gonzalez had less value than Jose Reyes
1: yeah yeah I mean that's it's well I it's obvious to me that that their emotions and their nostalgia are playing into this and that it's not actually a baseball move as far as like Gonzalez versus Reyes now I mean it obviously doesn't have to be one or the other they should cut both of them but the fact right. that they have cut Gonzalez and obviously made like a somewhat objective assessment that he, he is not fitting for a starting major league first baseman anymore, they clearly can't be objective about Jose Reyes. At the same time, it's infuriating. I mean, I like the thing is is like the what what you said about what Chris said. In a vacuum, I agree with that the fact that like Gonzalez can provide these things for the Mets. But the reason why I was so vehemently against the Gonzalez signing and the Reyes is signing and insert signings like that here is that I know that the Mets are going to come to the realization way too late that these guys aren't providing what they need to provide for the team because they're way too attached to aging veteran players. That's my problem. If he, if they saw Gonzalez as a guy that they could easily cut like the way the Braves saw Bautista just like cut bait with him as soon as they realized that he stunk, which was way earlier than, you know, they actually ended up cutting him, then I would have been pretty fine with it. But the fact that they like are incapable of cutting bait when it's clear that they should is the reason why I don't like that they make these signings.
2: Yeah, I I agree with everything you just said. Um, Absolutely, 100%. But let's talk about Gonzalez objectively here for a second. Sure. Obviously, he had... No business being a starting first baseman on a team that had playoff aspirations. Right. But as a bench piece, explain to me why in real terms, not in, well, Jose Reyes is a switch hitter terms, why Adrian Gonzalez is a less valuable bench piece than Jose Reyes is. Not defensively, but from an offensive pinch hitting standpoint, the Mets have no one to pinch hit right now. Yeah, Why is Gonzalez less valuable than Reyes? I'm not saying you should be on the team, but if Reyes is there, I want to know why Reyes brings more value.
1: I mean, literally the only things are the things you just said, which is that A, Reyes can theoretically hit right-handed, and our team is very lefty-heavy to begin with, and B, Jose Reyes plays, plays in air quotes, multiple positions, and Adrian Gonzalez decidedly does not. Those are the only two reasons, but... Reyes is so, so much worse at the plate than Gonzalez, and that's saying something. It is. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Gonzalez was at least, like, he had, like, what, like an 80-something WRC-plus when we caught him?
2: Something like that.
1: Which is, like, I mean, it's really, really not good for first base. But, like, as far as, like, league average, it's only, like, 10 points or so below. Reyes is at, like, a 14th. Yes, it's just like so much worse. Like the level is so much worse that it's just incomprehensible to me why Reyes is on this team.
2: And not only that, like you know, they they cut Gonzalez somewhat unceremoniously, which I don't care about. I'm not. I don't think they owed Gonzalez a uh, a ticker tape parade or anything, right? But sure. But you know, the after the the Sunday night Subway Series game, a game which the Mets almost lost solely on the defensive ineptitude of Jose Reyes. Oh, my God. <laughs> where he fucked up every potential aspect of a double play.
1: I almost had a nanny or something.
2: Oh, I was so mad. I'm I was so, so mad. Oh, it was it was, it was was nasty around Casa Salvatore. It was not, not a pleasant place to be. I almost um,
1: physically transformed into virus guy. I was like, <laughs> Jose Reyes is a virus.
2: <laughs> yeah. Like it was, it was really, I mean, just unbelievably bad. But, but to me, like Reyes being on this team still is the perfect avatar of what's wrong with this team.
1: Yeah, it totally is. And I mean, I wrote along with uh, another one of our amazing writers, Rich Staff. We recently wrote a, a pretty extensive piece about, you know, the his like throughout Mets history, how bad they've been at dealing with their players. And I think the fact that and I think that's the thing that's been so much more frustrating to me than all this lack of hitting, like, like you know, screwing DeGrom every time out. Like, all that stuff is so, so frustrating. But what's even more infuriating to me is the stuff about, like, needing Jose Reyes to have a proper send-off when they consistently, like, throw guys like Ioannis Cespedes under the bus all the time and, like, shit-talk him to the media about, like, oh, he needs to come back because he's getting paid a lot of money and they, like they like throw their stars under the bus to like actually great players all the time. But meanwhile, like Jose Reyes and his 14 WRC plus need a proper send off, And they're worried about his feelings and how to like wait to cut him at the right time and stuff. It's like, this is like, it's such a weird hill to die on. Like choose your battles. You're choosing the wrong one. Like there's so much else wrong. And you're just, Oh, Oh, it makes me so mad. <laughs>
2: I am, again, I'm right there with you. And when you're looking at this team, like one of the things that I had said over and over at the start of the season was the reason the Mets were going to be good this year were because the Mets had the deepest bench they had in recent memory. And the names that I was citing on this deep bench were players like Wilmer Flores, were players like Brandon Nimmo. And, you know, there there was this idea that these players were going to be part-time players, and, and if they got hot, it was going to be really hard to find them at bats, but that's a good problem to have. Right. And their bench has just, I mean, utterly dis- disappeared.
1: Yeah, injuries utterly again. disappeared. What else is new? Injuries. Injuries, injuries, yeah. injuries. And it's like, it's this, like, they just never, they never learn. They, they do the same stuff over and over again and expect a different outcome. They sign aging veteran players, expecting them to not decline or get hurt. They like yeah they overhauled they changed their manager and like their bench coach but they didn't and they fired Ray Ramirez who was like I mean I'm not saying he shouldn't have been fired but like you know one guy isn't representative of all the problems he was clearly the fall guy for that but like they didn't get rid of Boris and he's the one like running the strength and conditioning and it's clear that like he is playing a role in why all these players keep getting hurt it's not – the Mets – I mean, I know the injuries are up across baseball and everybody deals with this and every franchise deals with this, but the Mets is just unprecedented how many injuries they have.
2: Yeah. It's, season after um,
1: season after season.
2: Yeah. And, you know, what's – I think what's especially frustrating is um, I, I know that there's a big, big difference between minor league stats and major league stats and that success in the minors does not equal success in the majors, and especially, you know, like, double-A numbers do not equal uh, Major League numbers. But when you have Jeff McNeil and Peter Alonso doing legitimately great stuff in the minors this season, when their Major League counterparts are doing so much less than that... yeah. To, ha- to keep them down there just makes no sense to me. And both of those guys are somewhat not... Look, this is not holding down Noah Syndergaard to, to Super 2 status because you're going to be paying this guy millions of dollars over the course of his career. Right. I don't think anybody expected either of these players to amount to anything. The fact that they're doing so well is against... The better, uh, the, the better thought process of just about every Mets-knowledgeable prospect writer that I trust. Yeah. And so, why wouldn't you roll the dice on these guys? I don't know. You know, I understand that Dom Smith needs to be given a real shot at some point. I understand that. He's done nothing to prove that in the minor leagues.
1: Yeah. He's hit two home uh, runs in Vegas this year, which is, which is alarming.
2: Yes. And... You know the McNeil thing—that's Reyes' spot.
1: spot. <laughs> yep, sure. And
2: is. there's there's no way that he performs worse than Reyes. The, How it, could he?
1: Statistic, almost statistically impossible for him to be worse than Reyes. And I I mean, ugh, it's just and he, and the thing that's frustrating to me about the McNeil thing is that he's a minor league free agent at the end of the season.
2: Yeah, if you don't call him up now, that's it.
1: He, they they're gonna have to let him walk, and it's like yeah. so. You're really gonna and Sandy Alderson said in his press conference that we need to see something more from him. You're running out of time to see something more from him. From him, just call him up and see what he can do, so that you know whether to let him walk in the off season or
2: not. And look, here's the thing: we know Cabrera is a little bit banged up right now. He's first of all, he's always banged up. He's he's a triple Cabrera, right? He he his permanent state is banged up, right? But you you have a you have a useless Reyes. You have a banged-up Cabrera. You have an underperforming Rosario. You have a just back from the disabled list Todd Frazier. You have a still-on-the-disabled list Wilmer Flores. And you have an underperforming Dom Smith.
1: And an underperforming Luis Guillorme as well.
2: Yes, I'm sorry, I I forgot to throw Guillorme in there. You also have an underperforming Jay Bruce. The other first-base option. There is literally no one on their infield, with the exception of Todd Frazier, who is probably both healthy and playing the position they should be playing on a playoff-caliber team.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Yep. That's a sad, right? but unfortunate truth. Yep.
2: So if that's the case, then what's the harm?
1: Yeah, I don't know. They
2: especially this, McNeil. This, especially McNeil.
1: This team just seems to have like like an allergic reaction to using internal options like at like at all times it's 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 very confusing like instead of you know like like they they like went out and got jose bautista they instead of you know like promoting instead of like promoting some of these relievers that are actually doing well in triple a like drew smith they've gone out and got gotten that guy from the white Sox. like what chad is chad beck chad beck like, what Sounds is, like
2: a name I made up.
1: What is he doing? Like, I just I don't understand the game plan because now Chad Beck has to be on the team instead of like, instead of giving these guys that are in your own system a shot. I just don't understand why the Mets seem to like look outwards before they look inwards almost every time.
2: I think that's a very fair question. I, I think in the Chad Beck scenario, I could understand if. Um, I mean, a waiver claim costs you almost nothing. Yeah. I understand if, you know, Ramos might need uh, rotator cuff surgery. You've had an ineffective Blevins. uh, Lately, ineffective uh, Seawald. You know, um, Robles has not been fantastic this season. Familia's on the DL. Like, you need to bring in arms. I understand you want to take a shot. If you know, and apparently Callaway is the one who suggested Beck, that he oh. had liked what he saw from him.
1: Interesting, when, I did not know when,
2: that. Yeah, I read that uh, someplace today. I forget where uh, that, that Callaway had liked what he had seen from him. So that's you know to me that makes a little bit of sense, right? This is a recommendation from your manager. Uh, it costs you almost nothing. Give it a shot. Why not, right? He had a, uh, Callaway is also the one who suggested Swarzak. Um, which, you know, it, it's been so hurt, it's been hard to tell yeah. whether that was a good signing or not. We but, have a
1: very small end right now. I mean, it, uh, coming off the disabled list, he had one bad outing and one good outing so far, so right. we'll see. It,
2: exactly. Um, so I don't really have a, as much of a problem with that, but I, but I definitely understand your point. And I think with, um, with just the way the Ponds are so historically, almost comically cheap, it seems weird to me that they wouldn't be, that they wouldn't be doing more to try and save that money, which has to mean using players in your own system.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, and I, I think it's well worth a listen. If anybody, for whatever reason, skipped last week's podcast, go back and listen to Steve Saipa and Chris talk about the draft and talk about the flawed draft strategy the Mets employed too. You know, it just it seems very weird to me. I keep thinking about this. It seems very weird to me that there's a certain amount of money associated with the with the draft, right? You right. There's, there's a draft pool there. And the Mets clearly have that money to spend. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to spend that in the best way you could?
1: I don't know. I this team does things that I don't understand on a near daily basis. they're just running away that i can't i don't understand and i mean i i i concede that i am not knowledgeable enough to be a baseball front office person i know this about myself i'm not trying to pretend that i could run this team better or something like that but i just like there is a certain amount that's just head scratching i just can't Brain, wrap my head wrap my brain around how this team is run sometimes is very 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 unfortunate It's just it just seems to be incompetence from top to bottom like it's very frustrating <laughs> like I and I don't think I mean Sandy Alderson takes some of the blame but in the end it all goes back to ownership to me like nothing's gonna change unless the Ponds change and that's not changing anytime soon so I I think we just gonna are gonna have to deal with this for another who knows how long <laughs> that was depressing uh,
2: yeah sorry but let, let's pretend that you were qualified to be in the major league front office okay and let's say that you know um just for argument's sake even though they play in a dome tomorrow night's game is rained out okay and so you have between you know it's it's ten seventeen on wednesday night you have until let's call it four o'clock on friday okay To improve the Mets in a realistic way. Sure. To do a couple of things, a couple of moves that would, would, um, if not improve the Mets' on-field performance for Friday night, would possibly improve the Mets' on-field performance for the rest of the season, or even looking forward to next season, or just improve morale. The inspiration for this is our friend Chris McShane wrote a piece today on the site about what he would do to help the Mets. What he said is he would... Uh, attempt to sign Syndergaard and DeGrom to extensions to show their fan base that they are going to build around these guys, and then they would instantly DFA Reyes, and, uh, excuse me, I'm yawning, because I'm so tired of this shit, Um, (laughs) they would uh, would DFA Reyes, and then um, instantly put folks like Cabrera and Bruce on the disabled list, and let them heal up, and truly get better. Yeah. Um, So what would be your version of that? What would you do in the next couple of days to make the Mets product better in some way, even if it's just marginally better?
1: Right. I can't say I disagree with anything that Chris wrote. <laughs> I mean, I would, like, I am very much in the, and I know that there is definitely a tear it all down camp, and I respect that. I mean, how frustrating this season has been, c- compounded with the frustration of the past few years, I totally understand why there's a segment of the fan base that wants to just. Trade DeGrom, trade Syndergaard, tear it all down, start from nothing. I get that. I'm not in that camp. Um, I think that DeGrom and Syndergaard still represent a part of a core that is still there. I mean, like, you can squint your eyes and you can see the core. We still have one. It's DeGrom, it's Syndergaard, it's Conforto, um, who I think will get it right. I I have faith in Conforto. I don't think he should be sent to the minor leagues. That's freaking absurd. Um, Agreed. (laughs) <laughs> so we have a core, and Nimo include Nimmo in the core um, I would
2: also include Rosario in the core Yes,
1: Rosario's in the core I think we have a core to work with So I don't think that we need to tear it all down and start with nothing But I think we need to retool But I agree with Chris, I would absolutely sign them to extensions right now Because these are two players that have been your star players Especially, especially DeGrom He's just been the one shining light in the darkness for years now and he needs to be the guy that's on this team for the long term. Um, he's our one nice thing. I refuse to part with our one nice thing. So I agree with Chris there. Um, I would DFA Reyes right away. Um, and everyone knows that I want, I've want. i wanted to do that since, like, day one. But I, we should do it. Um, and we should bring up McNeil. I would do that immediately um, to take Reyes' spot on the roster. Um, I would shake up the relief core a little bit i would probably give drew smith a shot um maybe maybe that guy Handhold. i would give him a shot um just more internal options less waiver claiming in the relief core just shake it up a bit i wish some of our guys down in the minors weren't hurt like do we know what the status on like bachelor is like he's a guy that i think should get a shot this year if he wasn't injured
2: yeah, I'm not sure what his status is right now, actually.
1: Yeah, he's a guy that probably would have been promoted already if he hadn't gotten hurt. Yeah. Um Speaking of, this is like a side note completely, but I'm obsessed with the PJ Conlon tweet. <laughs> it's like,
2: what was the tweet? I'm not. I'm not aware of this. You don't
1: remember? The, you don't know about the PJ Conlon tweet? Oh my god! So, if you probably do recall that PJ Conlon was designated for assignment. Um, and then, oh
2: okay. yes I know about the tweet where he uh, he basically crossed out Dodgers and yeah. wrote Mets yeah okay. Yeah,
1: that tweet killed me it made me so happy I was like I, you know what PJ Conler I'm really glad you're back on the Mets because that was an epic tweet um, so yeah I'd shake up the relief core and give our internal options a shot what else would I do? Oh, yeah, I would DFA Bruce at least, if not Cabrera and Bruce, but definitely Bruce, especially getting, DFA or DL. I, oh, uh, DL, DL. Okay, sorry. I was going to say. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm messing, I'm messing it up now. I mean, Bruce has been worthy of the DFA, but real, you said realistically, so yes. uh, we're not going with DFAing the guy we signed to a thirty-nine million dollars contract. Um, I think, I think that was a mistake, but I think Bruce isn't this bad. Um, Agreed. DLing him, I think, might help. Um, although I mean, especially given the sore back, um, people have been calling for DL for Bruce for a while. Um, but plantar fasciitis is tricky and I do think that resting will help, but it's not going to get rid of it. Like I think that people are thinking that the DL is going to be some magic bullet for Bruce. It's not, um, he's got some issues beyond the the fasciitis and the fasciitis is not going to go away from a 10 day DL stint. It's, it might help him feel better, but he still needs... It's a chronic injury that needs daily attention, so I think that people need to temper their expectations with how much a DL stint will help him, but it may help with this new back soreness, and I think he definitely is way beyond due for the DL, and Cabrera probably the same. Um, Oh my god, what else can I even do to fix this team? There's just so much wrong. (laughs) Um, um, I would have like honestly i mean i guess you can't now you can't like you can't designate people for assignment like once they get hurt right or (laughs) no so like i i mean i would have designated ramos for assignment before he got hurt but that's just me um i would have not tendered ramos in the first place
2: (laughs) yeah i i'm not a ramos that's cheating that's
1: cheating at this game we're playing i'm sorry um i'm running out of ideas i feel like chris chris covered the best ideas um yeah. is there anything else you would do you think in the short yeah. term i could fix this team
2: well first of all i if if i were in charge i think i would have to be 100 percent comfortable with the idea that we're not making the playoffs this year oh yeah And I think as long as you have no real playoff ambitions, at this point, this season can be used for two things. It can be used to evaluate the talent that you have, and it can be used to showcase the talent you go on a trade. Yeah. So that is a, a bit of a delicate balance here, but I would, much like you, I would shake up the relief core. But I would also shake up the starting rotation a little bit. I think that uh, you know, right now anyone not named DeGrom or um or should have their role challenged or changed a little bit. I would um I would keep Lugo stretched out
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I would create a Lugo Vargas piggyback. Mm-hmm. And um, because I, I don't think Vargas is particularly well served in the bullpen, right? But I also think that to expect Vargas to go through a lineup two or three times at this point in his career might might be uh, overestimating his ability. And so I would uh, I would let him start games, and I would have Lugo finish games.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I I think if you can if you can reasonably expect four innings from Vargas. You can reasonably expect five innings from Lugo in that situation, mm-hmm. and that's one game then where theoretically you're saving your bullpen. Yeah. I understand that that's not always going to work out that way, but it's a way to to save your bullpen. I would also completely dismantle. I would tell Callaway to forget about the term closer. Yeah, and and you know and manage the bullpen creatively, which he said he was going to do. You know, I, I would I would hold his feet to the fire about that. Give Drew Smith a chance. Give give anybody with a live arm a chance, essentially. Yep. Um, especially in the bullpen where performances are so volatile, you do not want to waste good seasons from people. Yep. Someone's having a good season, you want to get them out there and, and throwing.
1: And part of um, that is learning how to double switch better.
2: <laughs> yes, and that is a Callaway problem. And a, yes. and a Gary DeSarcina problem um, that needs to be addressed, you know, right away you know, you take an off day and like play uh you know um stratomatic,
1: stratomatic.
2: and and like you know show them how a double switch works um
1: that just brought back so many childhood memories
2: oh <laughs> well you're welcome um so i would do that i would uh i would dfa reyes right away i would uh, um i should call it mcneil i would also uh now that you've called up Dom Smith, I don't think you can send him down right, right away. Right, I think you have to give Dom Smith the rest of the season, more or less, to to prove himself or to prove that he's not going to do it. Yeah, I I think for the long term health of the team, you give him this, you give him the rest of this season, and then you say that's it.
1: Yeah, I agree.
2: If it doesn't work out, if it does work out, fantastic, wonderful. We've found a. A diamond in the rough, great. So I would keep Smith at first base. Um, I think that DL and Cabrera is really important. I would play while Cabrera is on the DL. I would play Guillaume the majority of the time at second base
3: mm-hmm.
2: for for similar reasons as Dom Smith. You know, I, I I'm not as willing to cut bait with Guillaume after this season if it doesn't work out. But I think we have a we have a great opportunity here to see what Guillaume can do. Yes. Show us what he can do. Yeah. Um, I would, uh, you know, I, 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 you can't go back in time and take away the Frazier or the Bruce contracts, even though I think the Frazier contract will look fine. Yeah, actually,
1: know. I'm fine. I'm still fine with the Frazier signing.
2: Yeah. And the Swarzak look...
1: signing. I think those were his two good moves. I mean, like, Swarzak, we still don't know, but I maintain that even if Swarzak ends up having a not-so-great year, that I I think it was good process.
2: Um, yes, agreed.
1: I think the Frazier signing and the Swarczak signing were good process. The rest of it was bad.
2: <laughs> yes. Um, I, I also think that when Bruce is healthy, if Smith is not performing, you need to get Bruce at least two starts a week at first base. Agree. Um, again, preparing for the future. If Bruce, is, if Bruce starts hitting again next season, and you still have Nimmo and Conforto and Cespedes under contract... You wanna have options with Bruce playing first base. And
1: keep in mind that next year Legaris is gonna be making nine million dollars in the outfield as well. So Yes. So that's that another outfielder it. that's not named Jay Bruce that is gonna be playing sometimes.
2: <laughs> yes. Yes. Um so I would definitely get him reps at first base. Also, if he starts hitting again and he shows he can play first base and outfield, that might make him a viable trade option for somebody at some point maybe though I, I, I sincerely doubt that but I doubt it just you know if, if, we're, if we're being optimistic here you know um I would also um I think I would keep the Mesoraco um Plucky split about where it is right now
1: yeah I have no problem with their playing time
2: I, I think Mesoraco has been a pleasant surprise so far in that he's been better than nothing yeah and i think a lot of folks myself included expected this to be a a a straight swap of nothing players yeah and it's been it's been better than that for both teams so far
1: yeah he's dropped off a little bit lately and i do wonder if part of that is because his playing time has diminished and he talked about like when he first came over he was like i need the regular at bats and it showed that the regular at bats helps him and maybe dropping back off has not But there's nothing we can do. We got to play Puleki sometimes. So,
2: yes. Um,
1: But my question for you is this is kind of going a little bit away from the immediate future and looking Uh more long term is what do you do about the catching situation? Because you're going to have Travis Darnot, who has Tommy John surgery, but he's going to be making some arbitration salary, which is probably too high i mean i am of the opinion that they should not tender travis darno a contract isn't he done um, because i think he's gonna be paying being get being paid more than i'm willing to risk a guy that really never showed much of anything other than isolated flashes even when he was healthy and he can't get healthy and now you're talking post tommy john surgery
2: isn't this his last season under contract
1: I thought that he was arbitration. No,
2: that's not true. No, no. He's, Arbi- he's Arbel is one next year. Yep. Yeah, you're right. Okay. So
1: he's going to make some sort of arbitration salary that is higher than, you know, he's going to be making something <laughs> that's not trivial. Um, And, like, obviously, Puecki is still under team control, um, and he's probably a given for next year to be, like, part of the catching tandem, but... I'm not sure that he's the solution to be the everyday catcher, like the primary starting catcher. I think that we would need someone to either share time with him or be the starting catcher and Poecckki be the backup and the once again as usual as is usual, a catcher, the free agent pool is less than inspiring. so my question is what do you do, and do you think about you know going back to our like short term gming do you think about? like, extending, like, offering Masaraco a deal, like a very, like, maybe, like, a two-year, very cheap deal before the season's even over.
2: I think if you're going to do that, you have to play him more than you're playing him right now. Yeah, fair. I think if you... And I don't think that's a bad idea, actually. I think Masaraco seems like, you know... I feel like one of my least favorite things people talk about is somebody being a good citizen in the clubhouse. I feel like that doesn't matter at all. I think it matters infinitesimal, infinitesimally more. It's not a word. It matters a little bit more if you're a catcher. Yeah. Because you have to, you have to keep the pitching staff cool and collected, and that's not easy to do. And he seems like a guy who is good at handling a pitching staff. Yeah.
1: I agree and with that.
2: That matters. That matters. He he has a little bit of pop, and you know, um, yeah. I would. I, I have no problem with him being their everyday catcher if there is a plan a couple of years down the road. But I don't, think, I don't think the Mets have a catcher in their system that they're feeling particularly good yeah, about.
1: no. I mean, there's Nito, and, and so, that's it. And we've already seen Nito this year.
2: <laughs> exactly. So, you know, all things being equal, I think I'd rather Mesoraco than Ploiecki or Darno, or Nito as the starting catcher for 2019 and 2020. Yeah. Uh, so I'm with you on that one, but I think that you have to see what you really have in Mezzanaco. Yeah.
1: For the record, I just looked it up. So Travis Darno is making $3.5 million this year, and he's going to make theoretically more than that. I mean, like, he's not going to get a real raise because he hasn't played, but he has to get something in arbitration. So he's going to make more than $3.5 million. And I just, I don't know, I I'm I, I've reached my limit with Darno. I'm done. Um, I mean, like I, it's not. It's obviously like nothing against him. I think he's been, you know, fine. But like, I can't. I can't justify more than three and a half million dollars for Travis Darno next year. I just can't.
2: I don't know how a team can carry Darno and Plawecki when there are other options available. Yeah.
1: And, I mean, there are options in free agency. It's just that there are, like, like usual, there are, like, a couple of guys that would be, like, you know, pretty good options. And then it really drops off from there to, like, fringe backup territory as far as catcher.
2: Right, right.
1: Um, I mean, there's Luke Roy again. Um, and then there's, <laughs> like, oh, my God, I don't even know. Um, I think that I'm looking – I'm, like, cheating and looking it up. <laughs> best catchers available on the free agent market it's not going to be great it's like Matt Wieters, Um Yasmani Grandal is a free agent he's not bad um, mm-hmm. Mezaraco there he is and Luke Roy and like Wilson Ramos that's like the like signable territory and then you go into like, like Kurt Suzuki for example is available like Rene Rivera again and like the types of guys that are backup catchers essentially so it's just like I feel I feel that the catching situation is becoming kind of dire for the Mets as far as the future. Like, right now, we're fine. But, like, what do you do next year?
2: Yeah, I think given all of that, I, I think the extend Meseraco is a really smart idea, actually.
1: Yeah. Cause I,
2: uh, if only because you'll get them cheaper this way, right. and therefore you can invest some of that money elsewhere.
1: Because I see it as, unless you're going to sign Yasmani Grandal or Wilson Ramos... Like, those are the only two, like, m- in my mind, quote, legitimate players that are not either, like, super backups or ancient. And Devin right. Masaraco is the same age as those guys. Like, Grandal is 29, Ramos is 30. Um, and mezarako is, I think, also 29. So he could represent a guy that we, like, take a flyer on for the future for cheap. I don't know.
2: Yeah, i i would be I would be all about that right now. I think. Like
1: a two year, like four million dollar or something. I don't know. I don't know.
2: I think yeah, I'm with you on that. I think that makes a lot of sense. So, and I in guess my armchair running last...
1: that's another thing I would consider doing.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess the last thing I would do was I would um, I would personally swap the conforto Nimo left field center field thing.
1: Nimmo should be playing I do not center. Understand. I agree with you. Yes.
2: Yes. Um, I have not thought about I think, that
1: until just now, but you're right.
2: <laughs> I, I think Nimmo makes more sense in center field. And I think that if Conforto is struggling a little bit right now because of his you're coming off an injury, lack of spring training, etc., you don't want to have him struggle both on both sides yeah, of the ball. Yeah. You, you want to put him in a position where he can be more comfortable. And Nimmo has all the confidence in the world right now let him play center
1: Yeah, I'm with you on that. 100%. Um,
2: you know, this all got so much easier when Syndergaard and Cespedes come back. Yeah. Who knows? Flores comes back. Who knows when
1: all that's happening. Although Flores, Flores seems to be actually happening soon.
2: Yes, it does. The
1: other guys, Um, I have no idea. Syndergaard was supposed to be like a nothing burger and now it's a thing as usual.
2: Yes, it is. Um, but again I, to me the the biggest the biggest problem with the Mets right now is that they are they're they're walking this this really fine line between being the dog in the house on fire saying this is fine and making small moves to improve themselves yeah. the problem is the small moves are going to do nothing until they admit that things aren't fine. Yeah. Like, if if they said today, we picked up Chad Beck because we like his stuff and because he might be an affordable option in the bullpen for years to come. Okay, that's fine. If we're talking about years to come and we're looking for something uh, a little bit more... Um, a little bit more forward-thinking and conservative, that's totally fine. But they still are talking like they're contenders in the division, and, and I really... I'm at the point where I'm not giving up on the season. However, I will say it is twice as likely that the Mets flounder in the uh, bottom two spots of the uh, of the division than it is that they even finish yeah. third.
1: Yeah, I wasn't in I wasn't in give up on the season territory until this eight game losing streak, and I, now I'm kind of getting there because <laughs> um, it's just. Even if even if the offense figures it out and becomes, like, what we think they could be, which is not even super great. It's, like, basically league average. Um, like, I just don't see them being able to make up the ground that they've already lost.
2: No, especially when you consider, like, Daniel Murphy came back yep. last night. And, uh, you know, there's going to be... It's going to be a lot harder to win games. It's, it's going to be hard. It's going to yeah. be hard. And that's all it's there is just, to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, yeah. the,
1: the thing that's crazy to me is that, like, when I've been thinking about, like, the big context of the Mets season, the fact that Noah Syndergaard went down for multiple turns in the rotation and, like, we didn't even blink about it because it's, like, the least of our problems. Like, that's when you know <laughs> it's bad because – that's because true. like I feel like no one has even not that like we don't miss him in the rotation. We absolutely do. We miss him on the team. He's a big part of the team. He's a part of the future. He's a part of the core. Like I am down to sign him to an extension today. But like the fact that like I feel like no one's even like talking about the fact that he's not here. That is amazing. like we've got we've gotten so far down the string of bad things that like like because if you had told me during the like 11 and 1 streak that like Syndergaard was gonna go down like I'd be like oh my god no we're done for (laughs) like that was one of the things I said at the beginning of the season that if that happened we we would like it would be a significant like blow to our ability to contend it was basically like Cespedes, DeGrom Syndergaard and Conforto have to be healthy for us to contend is what I said at the beginning of the season like if any one of those four go down we're done and now like Thor has gone down and no one's even like blinking an eye part of that is Seth Lugo to give him credit that he spilled in so admirably in the starting rotation. yes Um, and I'm actually I agree with you I think he should stay there um, I'm not sure how I feel about the piggybacking thing. I, I, I could get on board with that. I need a little bit more convincing, but I, but I definitely am on the, Lugo in the rotation train for sure. Well,
2: I mean, in a perfect world, there wouldn't be a Vargas to come yeah. with, or it would be a, a one year deal. So you could cut him with relative ease. Yeah. But, you know, I think the way, the way it's stacking up right now, they're not going to cut yeah. him. He's not a viable option in the bullpen. Yeah. And I don't think he's necessarily a viable option in the starting rotation. So you have to find some place for him to work. And I think he works essentially as a long man that starts the game. But the problem with that is that then you're expecting five innings from your bullpen every time he starts a game. And you can't do that. So you have to find somebody who can eat more of those innings. I don't see anybody out there who can eat those innings better than Lugo. The downside to this of course is that if he goes in there and shits the bed like Jason Vargas tends to do, then you wind up with okay, Lugo's coming into a game where he's already behind. Yeah.
1: And like you're wasting essentially your like best or second best depending on how you look at it. Well, with Familia down, he's he's in the top 3 when Familia is there and in the top 2 when he's not there. Um you're wasting your top reliever in a game that's not you know that's already out of the like out of reach. Whereas like you really want to be able to pitch Lugo for two innings. You really want to pitch Lugo in the seventh and eighth inning of a one-run game. Like you use right. Gazzelli.
2: I, I can buy that. I can buy that. I guess the 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 way to to maybe sort of counter that is maybe you would do the opposite and you would still prepare uh, Vargas as if he were a starter. But you let Lugo start the game and go the first yeah. five innings.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Could because then Vargas comes in. He's left-handed. He's a totally different look than Var- than Lugo yeah. is, and so maybe that makes a little more sense yeah.
1: then. And um, especially given the gonna... gas that Lugo's been throwing, uh, like this season, exactly. he's amped it up to like I think like his most recent start, he hit ninety-seven on the gun a couple of times, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> it's been yeah. impressive.
2: I've, the, that is the one benefit of him coming out of the pen, or or being the back end of, of a piggyback. Because if Vargas is sitting in the in the low nineties to start a game, and then Lugo comes in with his you know insane curveball and a a mid nineties fastball, that's going to really disrupt yeah. the hitters. But you need Vargas to keep the the other team off the board. Yeah. Early. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think in the end, Lugo's real role is just, like, the first guy that starts a game when you need a guy to start the game. Like, when like he's the first guy they turn to outside of the five guys that are in the rotation, and then otherwise he's one of the shutdown relievers in the bullpen. Realistically, that's how it's going to be, even though I think he deserves to stay in the rotation. But realistically, that's probably how the team is going to use him. And it's hard for me to get too mad about that because, like, I mean, like, Mickey Callaway or it might have been Dave Island. I can't remember which one of them it was. It was basically like, Have you seen our bullpen? We kinda need him to be there and like I can't even like yeah, you're not wrong. I can't even be mad <laughs>
2: That's very fair.
1: But I'm of the opinion that, like, the guy that's the best needs to give you the most <coughs> innings. So, you, like, the rotation is more important than the bullpen always, even though it feels like it's really important to have him pitch that seventh and eighth inning in the close game. But, like, really, you just want to give the better pitcher the most innings.
0: Right.
2: Right. Well, let, let's answer the email we get sure. quickly. Um, and I mean very quickly. We're going to fly through this. So, sorry, Dave. Uh, Our friend David emailed us, he said, hey guys, I am fighting myself again asking why I'm a Mets fan, but I am and that's okay. So I think there is a way to make some decorations, decorate, (laughs) and try for next year. Uh, Option one, what do you think of a Thorn and to the Rockies from Marquez, Rogers and Murphy? Would you do that? Uh, Option two, about trading Familia, Cabrera and Wheeler. Could that bring us anything we can use in the future? Thanks for your show and great job guys. Uh, First of all, I am not in favor of trading Thor or DeGrom. I'm not in the tear-it-all-down camp yet. Um, But I think that any trade for Thor would have to bring back, I mean, if not a Major League-ready player, then two or three incredibly top prospects. Yeah,
1: that's not enough of a package for Thor.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. As for the second trade, I don't know what Familia Cabrera or Wheeler bring you back in a trade. I think if Familia was healthy this year, you could maybe trade him for something. Uh, I think Cabrera is is a nice little player, but I don't know any other team that needs his specific skill set more than the Mets do right now. Yeah. Maybe in a month that will look different. Yeah. But we'll see. Um, and uh, maybe Wheeler, if Wheeler continues on this path, maybe Wheeler is a, is a viable option to be traded. But I think right now there's still too much uncertainty, especially after last night's
3: start.
1: Yeah. I think that, like, it's, it's unfortunate because I think that, like, you know, going into the season and in the early part of the season, which obviously at that point we weren't really thinking about trading guys because we thought we were contending. But... Like Familia and Cabrera were the two clearest trade chips if if things went south. Those are the two obvious ones because they're both hitting free agency and they're both good still. Um, But the problem is is that both are injured now. Um, So Familia more significantly so. So now Familia's injured, so that significantly hurts what we could get back for him even if he comes back before the deadline, Um, because his body of work will not be as great. And right. Cabrera, like, can barely move at this point. Um, and I think that limits what we can get back from him. And if you, if you think about, like, like, I mean, I'm in favor of unloading Cabrera just because we know he's not going to be on the Mets this year and you might as well get something. But the thing is, is, like, you think about think about how underwhelming all the 2017 trades were, and it's going to be even yeah. worse than that. Because...
2: That's my exact yeah, point. Yeah, the
1: 2017 trades, you had a very productive Neil Walker a very productive Jay Bruce as rentals and a like pretty damn productive Lucas Duda, although he was kind of falling off a little bit
2: and And Curtis Curtis Granderson.
1: Granderson. So you had four guys
2: and Addison Reed, Reed.
1: right? So you had five guys that were all probably just as good as how Cabrera is performing now. And they brought back pretty underwhelming returns
2: middling bullpen arms who
1: we now don't even like are are, who are all now either not really performing terribly well at the big league level injured or not even at the big league level so this year so like that was supposed to be the retooling of the bullpen and filling it with as many like high upside triple a arms as possible and like none of them have panned out to be like super great this year Not that they may not in, like, beyond this year, but, like, Rame has been up and down this season. He hasn't been so great. He's been okay at times. Um, Callahan's hurt now. Drew Smith is still in the minor leagues. Like, these are guys that we haven't seen the return from. And so whatever you get back from Cabrera is going to be the same or worse than that. Same with Familia, probably. Unless,
2: yeah, unless one of them goes on an insane tear... And there's a team out there, you know, what used to be the San Francisco Giants that would overpay for a rental, you know, maybe you something. But I, I think GMs are just smarter than that yeah. now. You will never see the two and a half months of Carlos Beltran for top prospect Zach Wheeler ever again. Right. I firmly believe yeah. that 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 those days are over.
1: Yeah. The last great trade we made like that was the Diggy trade.
2: Yes. Exactly. And the Dickey trade I, I think is even is even crazier because I mean just you know for the for the surplus value of of Cindergaard and Buck and Darno, even though none of those three have necessarily been exactly what you hoped they'd be, and that's not shitting on Cindergaard, he's just been hurt a bit. Yeah. You know, um it's just insane. But, but yeah,
1: it's just like, yeah, Um, I just like, I mean, yeah, I I guess getting something is better than nothing for those two guys, but don't, don't expect anything good. And Wheeler, I think is an intriguing case. I think you could actually get something for him um, because I think that, you know, young rotation arms are always valued. Um, But I don't know. It's just a question of like, will whatever he bring back, Provide more value than just holding on to him for the future because we don't really have. I mean, yeah, we have Jason Vargas for another year, and then we have Matt's um, Thor and DeGrom still. But do we really have the starting pitching depth to be able to afford to trade a guy like that?
2: Right, because there's nobody in the No, ranks. I mean,
1: there's like there's guys that we finally promoted to double A that deserve like that. There's like Peterson and Dunn, but they're not ready. So, no. like, yeah, maybe, like, a few years down the line we have arms, but not sure as hell not right now. Like, who is even the var- uh, the Vegas starting rotation, can you name it? Like, I can't. Oh, no, I have no I can't. You. Like, what? I know guys that were in it at one point that aren't anymore. Like, A.J. Griffin was in it. He's not in it anymore. Aaron Laffey legit retired after he gave up, <laughs> I don't even remember how many runs it was. It was, like, 14 runs in an outing, and then he immediately retired. He was in the rotation. Um, I think Janice, the knuckleballer, was in the rotation at some point. Um,
2: I Was Conlin. Yes,
1: Conlin and Oswalt, right, um, were in the rotation. Uh-huh. And it's just like, dear God, like, there's legit nothing. So, like, that makes me so nervous to trade Zach Wheeler, even though I actually think he could bring back a little something. But, like, I don't see the point of that. So we're a team that needs to trade guys. We need to be sellers, but we don't have anything to sell. Typical.
2: Yep. Um, well, let, let let's end the podcast on a positive yes, note. Let's do that, or end our segment <laughs> rather on a positive note. So, um, by the time you're listening to this, it very well could be taken down because this is a weird thing that's even out there. But if you are, uh, if you're able. Search Twitter, search wherever you can, try and find the audio of Terry Collins calling out uh, the umpires when Syndergaard was thrown out of the NLCS in 2015. 20, oh, sorry, NLDS, rather, 2015. Um, Allison, do you want to give us just a, a brief tease of what we're going to be hearing if we look this up?
1: Uh, yeah. So, like, it's it's the audio of the whole exchange, like, after, um, Syndergaard threw behind, um, Chase Utley. And it's the whole exchange after that when Terry Collins, like, screamed at the umpires and, like, lost his entire shit. And um and the, the what the umpires told Syndergaard why they were throwing him out and it was just really really interesting and it made people weirdly pine for Terry Collins like who was possibly the but by the time he was like let go the most hated person on Mets Twitter and people were actually pining for him
2: yeah like this
1: this <laughs> um... video was powerful enough to make people pine for Terry Collins.
2: Yes. Now, let's just make a couple of things clear. First of all, this is not safe for work. So if you're going to listen no. in your office, make sure your volume is all the way down. Terry Collins has some choice and words here. And it wasn't here. the NLDS. Um, it
1: was 2016. It was like...
2: I'm sorry, it was 2016. It you're was, right. It was in retaliation for... Yeah, it was for, the
1: first... It was like the first time we played the Dodgers in 2016. The yes, first time we faced
2: up. Yes, Dudley
1: I'm sorry. Because they didn't let... They, they did, the, the whole reason why this went on... They didn't, they didn't let...
2: They didn't let Utley. They didn't yep, solve it. Right. They like
1: didn't like they didn't punish Utley properly, and they let the whole thing drag on. So it continued to drag on, and like the old school like retaliation baseball, we're going to take it in our own hands, vigilante justice stuff that always happens in baseball. So Noah Syndergaard, you know, threw behind him. Didn't even hit him with the pitch. Threw behind him, and that was enough. Without warning, no warning was given. He was just immediately ejected from the game. In a game and so instantly, like we had like basically no chance to win the game because Noah Syndergaard was ejected like in the first inning.
2: Yeah. And uh there there's a couple of things of note here. First of all, it's um it's notable just how like was <coughs> the word I'm looking for. I mean we all knew Terry Collins had a team. Yeah. Okay, that, that that's that's not news here. It's amazing to me how fast he goes from zero to sixty He
1: is here irate.
2: And doesn't doesn't come down with nope, that. Nope. Like, he is he is at he's he's in the red and that's just the way he's gonna stay. There is a phrase that the umpire uses twice that I've never heard before.
1: <laughs> Our ass is in the jackpot. What is
2: that phrase? Our ass is in the jackpot. Now What's that mean? let's just let's just let let, let let's, let's let's dig into it let's be good english majors here and let's deconstruct this sentence okay so I, I i think he means like that if he doesn't do anything it's his ass yeah
1: like they clearly mean that like you know that we're beholden to major league baseball and they're gonna be super pissed off if we don't do something about this so like it like it's kind of like a a really weird and different way of saying like you know we're between a rock and a hard place here or something like that. But it's like an yes. alternative idiom that I have legit never heard in my life.
2: Yeah, I I, I don't know if it's a real. I idiom think
1: it is. I googled it after a... the fact.
2: Okay, because to me, jackpot means a good thing. So like if, if 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 we're in Vegas and I have you blowing my dice for good luck, right? and I say, like, if we hit this, my ass is in the jackpot, I would think that means I'm going to win a lot of yeah, money. I don't know. <laughs> like, th- that doesn't seem to me like a bad place to be. Yeah. Like, does he mean, like, the frying pan?
1: I don't know, but I looked it up. I found it on Urban Dictionary at one okay. point, but now I can't find it anymore.
2: Because <laughs> probably every Google search for ass in the jackpot now Brings you back to yeah, this video. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, like, all the, like, legit, like, things are buried. Because it's all just, like, it's all the video and, like, people tweeting our asses in the jackpot. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I found what it meant at one point. But, like, it it was just, like, it, it was exactly what you think it means. But I don't understand the origin of the phrase. But, anyway, it was hilarious. Right. And he said it two times, which is the best part about it. Like, throw no, our asses
2: And in the two jackpot. times, like... Two times like a minute yeah, apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like he just repeats what he said to Collins. Like, huh? You know, like he he says, I believe he says it first to Syndergaard. Yeah, says to like Robert. you know we had to do this. Our asses in the jackpot. And then when Collins flips out, he says it yeah, to him again. Yeah,
1: yeah. And and I bet Syndergaard is like. What's that? Uh, but yeah, I exactly. think my favorite part about the video as a whole is like the foil between Terry and Syndergaard. Like, how they both react and how it's completely opposite. Obviously, like, the players can't flip out at the umpires, like, as much as managers can. But it's just funny because Syndergaard is always, like, as cool and collected as possible. So, like, when the umpire, like, comes up to him and tells him, like, you know, we had to do this. Our ass is in the jackpot. Syndergaard just goes, I was just trying to throw a fucking fastball. And he just says it, like, as straight-faced as possible, and it just freaking killed me it was so funny (laughs) it's like you know and he's like and he's like two feet taller than the umpire too and that's my favorite part is he's just like looking down at the umpire like I was just trying to throw a fucking fastball and I just like it was so funny and then Terry Collins just like completely losing it and the part that like clearly made people like pine for Terry Collins and made it like endearing is not that he screamed and said a bunch of curse words and stuff it was the fact that he the, the part that like made me like appreciate terry collins was when he said you have to give us a chance you got to give us a chance like he's saying like you know that you're like essentially like making sure that we lose this game right now like you got to give us a chance because you're essentially blowing the game for us right now by kicking out our star pitcher in the first inning or
0: yeah yeah Yeah. the
2: other other part of it that I, that I, i appreciated was that at a certain point collins drops the bullshit and he says like Major League Baseball did nothing to this yeah,
1: guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep.
2: And he's, you know, he drops the, he was just trying to throw a fastball, it's unfair, to like, you know this is fucked up. Yeah. And the umpire says, like, you know where I stand on this, like, you, you know, I, I'm sure all the umpires were frustrated when Major League Baseball didn't do anything about that. Because then it puts their asses in the jackpot. <laughs> yeah, and it puts their uh, asses you know, in the jackpot. <laughs> and it and doesn't uh it doesn't you know doesn't help them at all they do not get to maintain law and order the way they want to because major league baseball undercuts yeah. them so i i get and i think just seeing collins basically admit like there's more to this and you have to recognize that and you have to recognize that we're the ones who are suffering because yeah. of this yeah
1: exactly and
2: I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, and too. it was
1: clear that they like had a relationship already, and Terry was calling him by his name, and he was like, "You know how I feel about this." And it was just, it was, it was a fun video. It was a fun video that harkened back to a time when the Mets were good and didn't take shit. <laughs> um,
2: it's also interesting that this came out the day after Callaway's first suggestion.
1: Yeah, yeah, right around the same time when Callaway finally like like blew a gasket a little bit for the first time. Which is, it's amazing, because he's been so even-keeled this whole time. And I'm not necessarily, like, there are people that have got on him for that a little bit, especially given the, like, juxtaposition of this Collins video and, like, how Mickey has acted as manager. And there have been, like, you know, the older school people on Twitter that have been like, maybe if Mickey got fired up a little bit, it would light the team on, like, it would light the, like, fire under their asses a little bit. I don't really believe that, um... I don't, I am not like, of all the things to criticize Mickey Calloway about, and there are a few of them, I, like, the fact that he doesn't, like, scream at umpires is not one of them to me, but that's just me. Um. Yeah. But.
2: I also want to say, perhaps paradoxically here, I hate the, like, self, uh, I, I hate the taking the law into our own, own hands, throwing at people oh, shit. Yeah. It's the like, worst. I really, yeah, I'm not a fan of that. But I will say that I feel like the Ruben Tejada thing is the only time I've ever understood. Yeah, because as a Mets fan, that was so infuri- infuriating that I, I needed justice yeah, somehow. Yeah,
1: that was the only time that I felt the need to, for that to happen. And, um, and, and and like just like the umpires were saying, and like Terry was saying, like this all happened because Major League Baseball didn't deal with it if Major League Baseball, like, stepped up and dealt with this shit more often, like, there would be less of that, like, you know, broing out, like, prideful bullshit, like, machismo shit. There would be less of it. I mean, it would still exist because you can't – it's hard to get rid of it. But it, there would be less of it if Major League Baseball, like, dealt with Chase Utley appropriately, um, and they didn't. So Noah Syndergaard had to throw at him, and it's just the way that it was. Um, And that's the only time I felt like it was justified ever was that because I was so mad. And the video, like the other thing that happened when I was watching this video is it just it it was simultaneously like the like the most joy and anger inducing video at the same time that I've ever watched. I've never felt those two emotions like so much simultaneously before and so intensely because like it took me back to how pissed off I was when that happened, I was, like, screaming at the TV. Like, I don't remember the last time I was that angry about a baseball game. Like, I was so mad. And that video took me right back to it. So I was simultaneously feeling irate, but also, like, oh, the Mets were good once. And back when, like, <laughs> no one hated Terry Collins yet. Or, the, like, some people did, but, like, you know, when Terry Collins was, like, not the most hated guy.
0: <laughs> what, I think,
2: what I think is also fascinating about that is if you watch that video, it's amazing how much has changed for the Mets yeah. since then. Like, I believe the infield, that game was Duda, Walker, Flores, and Ty Kelly.
1: Ty Kelly's still here.
2: <laughs> yes. And, and uh, you know, it's just, it's just a very, very different time for the Mets. And it wasn't that long no, ago.
1: No, it wasn't. It wasn't that long ago. And oh, speaking of Neil Walker, you mentioned Neil Walker being in the video. Shout out to Neil Walker's cameo in that video for being the dad. That was my. That was also. That was also one of the many myriad of things that makes the video great. One of the many little nuggets. It's like Neil Walker kind of steps, but like like Noah Syndergaard says, I was just trying to throw a fucking fastball, and like Neil Walker steps in between the umpire and Syndergaard, and was like, "Usually, you know, there'd be a warning first, right? Like, why wasn't there a warning?" And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. "I love you, Neil. Come back to me."
2: Yeah. Neil was what Neil Walker is one of the many players the Mets did dirty for no real yeah, reason. Yeah, accurate. Well, let's hope that more of these mic'd up ejection videos come out. This would be a wonderful new thing to populate Twitter
1: Oh my god. With. And and like we talk all the time about how like Major League Baseball is so bad at like marketing its players and like drumming up like you know, enthusiasm among the youth instead instead of like being like, "I know what the youth enjoy Facebook games on Facebook like instead of being that out of touch, maybe Major League baseball should take note that this video was exceptionally popular, not just among Mets fans, it got like a hundred thousand something likes on Twitter. so it's not just Mets fans that were enjoying this video. Mike up the umpires and the players more often and give us those little nuggets because I think that people will, e- even
2: if like, they Even if they bleep it, yeah.
1: Even if they bleep it, still,
2: still still great. great.
1: Do that more. Less Facebook, more mic'd up umpires.
2: I I think that's a good enough to sign (laughs) off. (laughs) Agree.
3: buddy it's steve siper and last week me and chris went over the draft so this week i want to go into a little more depth about the wild cards that the mets took all those prep players this year they picked 12 high school kids uh jared kalanick and simon woods richardson included with their first two picks and the rest of them are mainly in the 20s and 30s now all in all it's not that I'm not excited about all these high schoolers, but I am a little underwhelmed, uh, especially when compared to the class of high schoolers that they draft last year. Uh, that felt like a strong class. Mark Vientos and Bryce Hutchinson headlined it. But then there were some solid talent and potential in later rounds with guys like Nate Pedin, Yadayal Flores, Leah McCall, Noah Nunez, and Ronnie Taylor Jr. And that's the difference, I think, between this year's draft and last year's. At at least on first glimpse, anyway. The guys that they selected, the upsides just don't feel as high. Now, obviously, who knows? And in five years, I could look like a complete moron. But this class, I don't know. Just doesn't feel as exciting as last year's did. So we went over Kalanick and Woods Richardson in some detail last week. So let's fast forward now and start with the 11th round pick, uh, Franklin Para. He's left handed pitcher and he's drafted out of Kopieck High School in Long Island. He's six foot uh, one inches six foot one inch and he weighs hundred and eighty five pounds and he's a slender build, so there's projection in there. And right now the fastball sits in the high eighties and low nineties, generally about eighty eight to ninety three. And he lends it with a slider, a curveball, and a changeup. Right now the slider and the curveball, they both sit in the high seventies and low eighties, with the curveball on the bottom range and the slider are sitting at the top of that range and the two pitches still kind of bleed into each other but, you know Parra is pretty young still and he's developing all of those pitches but they're both saw, uh, glimpses of being solid pitches and they possess late break he has a commitment to San Juanito Community College but he already said that he's going to be going to be signing with the Mets so that's good, not sure about the signing bonus but given the fact that he signed pretty much immediately, and the fact that he was committed to just a community college, I can't imagine that the signing bonus that he's getting is going to be particularly high. Now next up is Zachary Hammer. He's a right-handed pitcher from Alexander Central High School in Taylorsville, North Carolina, and he was taken in the 21st round. Hammer is 6'2", so there's plenty of projection left in there. Uh, right now his fastball sits in the high 80s to low 90s, about 89 and 92. And it gets some sinking movement because his arm angle is pretty high. And he complements his fastball with a power curve sitting in the mid to high 70s. And it gets 11 to 5 drop. And it is pretty advanced for his age. And with a less name like Hammer, I would hope so. Uh, He occasionally throws a high 70s changeup too, but he rarely uses that pitch. And he's mostly just a fastball changeup kid right now. He has problems with his command. He misses a lot up into the arm side. And that's because he kind of is inconsistent with his release point. But that might actually be a pretty easy fix. Because it seems like the reason that he's always so inconsistent is because he's just releasing the ball too early. And not, you know, any kind of major mechanical flaw or anything like that. So that much is good. He has a, a commitment to Catawba Valley Community College. But the Mets should be able to buy him out pretty easily. Uh, He's indicated on Twitter that being drafted was a dream come true for him, so I don't think that he goes to college. I think that the Mets do nab him. The next prep player that the Mets selected was Jalen Palmer, and he is a shortstop that was selected in the 22nd round out of Holy Cross High School right here in Flushing. Um, I like Palmer a lot, and it's not just because he's from Brooklyn, but he's an extremely athletic 6'3", 190-pound kid, and it looks like he might fill in some more, too. He has a smooth swing, And thanks to his above-average bat speed and his continuing continuing growing body, there's a bit of power potential in there. And then with the glove, he's a strong defender. He gets good range, and he has a strong, accurate arm. And if his body continues growing and he loses some of that quick-twitch muscle and agility, he might be forced into the outfield. But right now, he has all the tools to handle shortstop. And if he has moved into the outfield, he does have a above, above-average speed, so that should help him hunt down fly balls out there. I wasn't able to find anything about college commitments, but I'm assuming that uh, he doesn't have anything going with any major schools, so I think that he should be signable. The next high school kid that the Mets picked was Saul Gonzalez, and he is a right-handed pitcher that was selected in round 23 out of Mount Verde Academy. In Montverde, Florida. Now, the big thing about Gonzalez is that he's big. Uh, the Mets like picking big pitchers, and Gonzalez certainly fits them mold. He's a six foot seven, two hundred thirty five pound behemoth. And besides for his size, his unique is his delivery is actually a little unique and noteworthy. Yeah, he's a really, really long arm that he wraps behind his back, and he uses all that torque to sling the ball from a, a pretty low. Three-quarters arm slot, and it has some crossfire delivery in the front, too. Fastball sits in low 90s. It tops out right now as high as 94, and it gets some sync to it. And based on his size, a lot of scouts project his fastball to eventually hit the high 90s, which would basically give him one of the best fastballs in this draft class that the Mets selected. And maybe the second best uh, after Bryce da Oka. Now, unfortunately, after the fastball, he really doesn't have much else right now. He throws a soft, sweepy, high 70s to low 80s slurve, but it's not really a good pitch. Um, He just recently started throwing it, and that's why it's so raw. He survived most of high school basically just being a uh, fastball-only thrower, not a pitcher. So right now, that slurve basically doesn't have short break, and he does slow his arm down and kind of guides the ball in when he throws it, which tips batters. So he's still very raw, Gonzalez, but there's definitely upside in there. He had a commitment to Alabama State, but he already signed with the Mets, so that's that's good. After Gonzalez, the next high school that the Mets picked was Brennan Hardy. He's a right-handed pitcher from Harrison Central High School in Gulfport, Mississippi. And they picked him with their 31st selection. Now, he is the son of William Hardy, if anybody happens to remember him. Probably not. Um, I certainly did not. He was drafted by the Tigers in the 25th round of the 1979 draft. And he played in their system for a few years. So if anybody actually does remember William Hardy, kudos to them. Because that's a pretty obscure guy. But his son, uh, Brendan, he's a lanky six four, 190-pound kid, so there's projection there. His fastball right now sits in the upper 80s, maxing at around 90 miles per hour or so. And he complements it with a curveball that sits in the mid-70s and a changeup in the high 70s to low 80s. And originally, it looked like signing him was going to be tough because he was on record as saying that he had no problem with honoring his commitment to Jones County Junior College and re-entering the draft at a later point if the Mets didn't pony up the money. But he did sign, so either he lowered his his demands or the Mets ponied up the money. So, another addition to the system. Next up, selected with the 33rd pick, is Mike Piccolo. And he's a right-handed pitcher from Blue Valley North High School in Overland Park, Kansas. And he's the son of J.J. Piccolo, who is the Royals' vice president and assistant general manager of player personnel. So of all the high school players that the Mets picked in the draft this year, I think Piccolo is the rawest. Right now, his fastball tops out just 86 miles per hour. And the one you know decent breaking ball that he throws is a super loopy mid sixties curveball. So he has a commitment to UNC Wilmington. Excuse me. And because that's a decent school, and because he's so raw, and because who his dad is, I don't think that he actually signs with the Mets. With their thirty-fifth pick, the Mets picked Ian Mejia. He's a right-handed pitcher from Saharita High School in Saharita, Arizona. You like my Spanish accent, there. Of all the prep pitchers that the Mets took, I think Mejia probably has the highest upside. Uh, he's six foot four, hundred seventy pounds, seventy five pounds. So he's going to grow. He's going to add strength. And right now, the fastball sits in the high eighties to low nineties. It's gotten as high as ninety four, so that's a pretty good base to work with. And then he complements it with a low eighty slider, a high seventies curveball, and um. Low to mid '70s changeup, so and and those are solid pitches. He has a commitment to the University of Arizona, and because of that and his po- overall potential, he might be a hard sign. And personally, I don't think that he signs the Mets. If they do, or if they are able to sign him, though, I think that that is a would be a very big addition to the lower end of the farm system with their 36th pick the Mets selected Zenzel Clark, and he's an outfielder from Everest Academy High School in Ontario, Canada. And Clark is actually one of my favorite picks that the Mets made this year. Uh, His mom is an Olympic athlete, and his cousins are Josh and Noah Naylor, so he's got good genes. And what stands out with Clark right now the most is his defense. Uh, He has the speed and the instincts to be a, a plus defensive outfielder. Right now, he's above average in center, He's got a strong arm that gets plenty of carry. He's got great range because of his speed and he has good instincts. And he could also play the corners. So in the future, if he fills in and keeps adding muscle, he's already 6'3", 190 pounds and growing, so that might slow him down. But if he keeps adding muscle, he can play the corners. He's athletic enough, though, that... Um he might be he might not be stuck in a corner. So his future, you know, in the outfield really just depends on how exactly his body develops. But that increased strength has really been evident at the plate um recently in ex- exhibition games the last couple of months. Ball's really been jumping off the bat harder with a much louder contact than it did in the past. Um the fastest exit velocity that he's been uh tracked with is 92 miles per hour which is pretty good for a young kid there's still a lot of rawness in his bat and he does have some timing issues with his swing but he does have good bat speed and that should allow him to to develop into a solid hitter once he starts refining his swing now he has a commitment to cal state northridge and he might be a tough sign because it's a good school he's got a good skill set but of all the guys that are unsigned, he might be the one that I think the Mets should go after the hardest. Next up, with the 38th pick, the Mets selected Nick Zona. And he's a shortstop from Hanover High School in Mechanicsville, Virginia. He's a solid 6'2", 180 pounds. And based on his frame, I don't know if he has that much more uh, weight and strength to put on. But at the plate, he kind of hits like a guy with more power. Uh, but since that additional power I don't think is coming, he's going to really have to change his mechanics up a bit. Basically, he uses a very wide and very open stance and a big leg kick, you know, something you would typically see big power hitters using. And then when he does swing, he kicks, he plants, then he swings, and he loses a lot of the energy from his lower half, which is where power usually is generated. So he's going to have to refine that swing. But on the other side of the ball, he's a much better player. Uh, he, played shorts, uh, he played second primarily in high school, but that was more in deference to another player and not because he can't play short. He has plus speed and a plus arm, and he should be able to handle the rigors as short because of those two uh, tools. He has a commitment to James Madison University, and he could be a tough sign because his numbers are kind of only so-so because he dealt with some nagging injuries all spring. And because he played second base primarily, so he might be interested in building up his value by going to college. And now, finally, with their thirty-ninth pick, the Mets selected Cody Darcy, a shortstop from Kenridge High School in Kent, Washington. He has a wiry six-one, hundred and seventy-five pound frame, so he's definitely going to start adding some weight, and that should help. that That should help him at the plate. Right now, the ball does actually, though, jump off of his bat thanks to some solid bat speed and a naturally lofty bat path, and he's mainly right now just kind of spraying gap hits, but, you know, as the cliche goes, as he gets stronger, some of those gap hits should start becoming home runs, and defensively, he plays shortstop, Uh, he does it well, he's got smooth footwork and glove actions, he's got a clean exchange, and his arm is above average. It's not always accurate because he, when he throws, he usually drops his arm down to a kind of lower three-quarters arm slot instead of higher, you know, over the top or high three-quarters. So he's putting some, like, cut on the ball, and it's not, you know, not good for first baseman to catch. But that's a that's a fairly easy thing to iron out with more reps, especially as a professional if he signs. And it looks like he he might. He has a commitment to Xavier. But based on some stuff that he's tweeted and retweeted, it looks like he's leaning towards signing with the Mets. So we'll see. All in all, though, now I hope everybody has a decent understanding of all the high schoolers that the Mets drafted. And remember that these guys are the rawest of the raw. And it's going to be years before we start seeing them, even in like the, the upper minor leagues, let alone the majors. The earliest that we'll see some of these kids is when and if, you know, they get assigned to the Cyclones in a year or two, um, since majority of them that are going to be signing are going to be going to the GCL Mets this year. So until then though, while they're at the GCL Mets, you can follow them in our daily prospect report, plug, plug, plug. And basically while you're there, get the best and most in-depth daily Mets monthly coverage anywhere on the internet. So, I'm Steve Saipa, and I had a, as always, I had a ton of fun doing all this draft stuff. Like I said last week, I'm a nerd and a weirdo, whatever, and find these kinds of things fun. And next week, I will return to our normally scheduled uh, minor league players of the week.
2: Thank you so much for listening. We truly appreciate it. Please go to AmazingAvenue.com. You can read Chris's piece on how the Mets can improve public perception of the team. You can read game recaps, news, analysis, all sorts of fun stuff there. You can also find Amazing Avenue on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can get this show from Apple Podcasts, from Stitcher, from blogtalkradio.com, from your podcatcher of choice. Please rate, review, and subscribe in Apple Podcasts if you are so inclined. That stuff really does help. Uh, You can also tweet at all the contributors to the show. I am at Brian Nap. Allison is at PetitePhD, and Steve is at Steve Saipa. So by next week, hopefully the Mets will have won a game or two. Hopefully we get another great ejection audio video out there. Or it's just the audio. I don't even need the video part. Audio is plenty for me. And uh, hopefully the Mets season looks a little bit less dire. And so until next time, let's go Mets.